short episode on nebulae with Daniel T. Andreasen on episode 337 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody else that likes going out under the stars. So in our last show, we talked about an introduction to stars. We're doing a short series with Daniel. He's a listener who mentioned that maybe we could do a little bit more of the background on the astrophysics of stars and as somebody who holds a PhD in astrophysics, we appreciate him helping out with the show. So welcome back and thanks again, Daniel. Yeah, no problem. Nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about H2 regions, planetary nebulae, supernova remnants, and dark nebulae. H2 regions, they're, they're one of those things that doesn't really roll off the tongue, but maybe we'll just start with Daniel giving us an explanation. Daniel, what are H2 regions and what are what is an example of an H2 region that, that people might be familiar with? Yeah, definitely more or less everyone that listened to, to this podcast are probably familiar with, with H2 regions, even without knowing. And I remember I was told in my astronomy classes that the most photograph object outside the solar system from Earth is the Orion Nebula, which is an H2 region. And an H2 region is a interstellar uh, atomic hydrogen uh, cloud of gas. So when I say it's interstellar, it just means that it's, it's gas that, is, that are between the stars. And this hydrogen is, is ionized. Um, that's where the two come in, in H2. If we have H1, we just have normal hydrogen atoms. Uh, but H2 is basically just a proton flying around because hydrogen have one proton in the core and one electron around it. So when it's ionized, it's just a proton left over. And in these regions, uh, we, have, we have a star, uh, star formation and usually something that happened very recently and and all the the light from the from the newborn stars they are the one ionizing all the the, the gas around them and that's why we can see things like the orion nebula which is so beautiful and we can see the some of the stars in the in the cloud so it's the it's the gas itself that's giving off a photon and that's that's what makes it glow and and be visible to to us observers back here on on Earth when we're looking at them, eh? Exactly, exactly. And um, these regions, as the name suggests, they are mostly hydrogen. But that is the case for most things here in the universe because hydrogen is the lightest element, and it was just the easiest thing to create during the Big Bang, uh, the beginning of the universe. And seventy five percent of of all the, the material in the in the universe that we know of <laughs> is hydrogen, while just as uh, around 24-25% is helium, the second lightest element. And then the, the rest, which we astronomers often just refer to as metals, even though they're not metals. So an astronomer only have three elements, hydrogen, helium, and metals. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's a good joke there, but I, I won't chime in with that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember one of my colleagues once had a t-shirt where he talked about uh, chemicals in, in, in stars. And he had a t-shirt where it said metal rocks, which I found <laughs> quite amusing. 
<laughs> but you know, all this interesting part, which is just uh, under one percent, probably is is the backbone of life. I mean, we wouldn't be around here. Uh, we wouldn't be around here if it was not for all these things that astronomers just lazily call call metals. When we observe these H two regions, we observe the uh, the emitted light uh, coming from the the stars being born there. And this is also the, the case for, for M2, which is, is so beautiful. And the reason why we also see other colors in, in M2, especially if you do some astrophotography, is because of all of these other elements that are also present in, in the nebula. So with, with M42, have you been able to see any color in that in, in any of your own uh, observing yet? Daniel, I'm kind of curious. No, not yet. Uh, I'm still observing from my backyard, which is probably a bottle five uh, area. I I didn't yet uh, go to a, a dark side, which I guess is probably needed to be able to see some colors in in that. In, in my experience, just just so that you know, you you need a dark site, but it doesn't need to be the darkest site in the world. For for example, my observing friend Mike, who who's been on the show and we often refer to, he and I were able to see color in it just a 10 minute drive from my back door. Just, you know, there's not much behind my back door, but, you know, just on the outskirts of the city, really still in sight of the city lights, we were able to see some of the red tones are sort of like a very crimson, almost like a blood red tone in the Orion Nebula this past winter. So it, it's one of those things I think people just need to be open-minded to. That, that they can see color in the uh, M42 Orion Nebula. So, but, uh, you know, really appreciate your, your explanation of that. This is, this is really great. So maybe we'll move ahead to the planetary nebulae. I, I personally, I love planetary nebula. Not sure about you, Shane, but it's always really neat to go out and do some public observing at a place that's reasonably dark and to show people that M57 smoke ring or the apple core shape of M27 uh, or if you get a good night, it's always fun to hunt down the, the helix on excellent nights. So w- what are planetary nebulae and how do they get their names? Yes, so they're actually not planets. They have nothing to do with planets other than they might have looked like planets in, in some of the first observations of them. So people just assume that this is not a, a pinpoint like a star. It looks more like a disk, like we see planets. So they call it. They were they were called planetary nebulas, um, and like so many other things in astronomy, names just tend to to stick around. Uh, we don't bother to change things up. Uh, we already called it once. Um, but these nebulas they are formed uh, near uh, a red giant stars uh, end of the life which our sun will eventually end up in. And this is when the, the outer parts of, of, a, of a dying star is being expelled during these thermal pulses I explained a little bit about in the episode about stars. And uh, in the center of, of, of these expanding shells uh, from, the, from the star, we'll get this white dwarf where the sun eventually, eventually uh, will become. And all the, the leftover these shells of the stars that is uh, that are now surrounding the, the white dwarf is what we call a planetary nebula. And like the H2 regions that I just talked about, it's also an emission nebula. 
which means that it's the the nebula itself that is is shining. Um, but here we see many other colors because there are heavier elements uh, involved because the heavier ele elements have been been formed in the core of the of the star. We see, for example, oxygen. That's why we say that people should use an O3 filter, which is doubly ionized oxygen. O1 means that it's just normal oxygen, which is just an oxygen atom. And O3 means that two of the electrons have been stripped away. Um, and probably one of the best known planetary nebulas, at least, uh, at least the one that I know the best, uh, but not by observing, is the Ring Nebula M57, where the, the inner parts are, are O3, um, and the outer parts are, are more reddish, and they come from ionized hydrogen and nitrogen. When you're observing, and you've, you've probably observed uh, M57, the Ring Nebula, yourself, I would imagine. Actually, I haven't uh, started observing uh, planetary nebulas yet. Uh, I've, I only watched uh, the Orion Nebula so far. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So you're just, you're just getting into this. Well, that, that's going to be a real treat for you. The next time we, we hear from you, I'll be curious to hear about your observation. Because it, be, it should be pretty high up. And as we get into July, when does it get dark there again for you? Probably I will start observing again in, in August or September during the night. Okay. And that's yes. when the clouds come back. So that's when the clouds come back. <laughs> the life of an astronomer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's why I like solar observation now. Well, I hope this next section is a real blast, but maybe I'll, I'll hand it over to uh, Shane for this one to uh, spare people the puns. <laughs> I can't believe you're, you're giving up on that, Chris. Wow. <laughs> so Daniel, uh, I think the next topic here is supernova remnants. So I guess maybe just, you know, what are they and, and why might they be uh, kind of fascinating or, or get people's attention for uh, observing purposes? Yes, they're uh, very fascinating objects, especially I think if we understand the process that created them and, and what is left there. Mm -hmm. um, so they are a little bit like planetary nebulas. It's also from uh, a star that, that has died. But these are stars that are much more massive, above maybe 10 solar masses. Um, so our sun will not end its life in a, in a supernova and create a supernova remnant. But when a star is, is that massive and it's at the end of its life, it will, it will die in the, in the huge explosion called a supernova. And the leftover uh, will be called a supernova remnant. That's basically it. And... The remnant itself is is the outer shelf of the of the dead star, and they can look in all different colors because there are many different kind of material being being thrown out from the from the from the dead star. Um, they are not necessarily as symmetrical as planetary nebulas. For example, the Ring Nebula it really looks like a ring. It looks very symmetrical. But here we have something like the Crab Nebula that looks very different and not extremely symmetric like a, a normal ring nebula. And when a star ends its it life in a, in a supernova, it's, it's usually because it's, 
it's uh, so massive that it's, it's just the core is collapsing. It can no longer withstand the pressure from gravity and it ends the life in a huge explosion. But there are also another kind of supernova. And this is when we have a, a white dwarf in a binary system and it's taking material from, from the other companion, which is maybe a red giant star. The material falls from the red giant star onto the white dwarf. And when it hits uh, a limit in mass, there is an uh, explosion and we have uh, a supernova. And these supernova are extremely useful uh, to, study their, to study other galaxies because they always explode uh, at the same mass. So we know how luminous they should be. So it's a way of measuring distances in the, in the universe, mm. looking for these supernovas. Anyway, back on topic. Um, there are a lot of heavy elements uh, involved in, in, a, in a supernova. That's why they have all the different uh, colors. And I think one neat thing uh, about supernova is that all the heavy elements that are being thrown away and also being created during a, a Big Bang, a star can only make material up until iron. But during a supernova explosion, we can create even heavier elements like, like gold and uranium and so on. And I find it fascinating to think that the, the iron that is in our blood, the gold that is on our ring or whatever it is, even what our telescopes are made of, are remnants of a dead star billions of years ago that, that polluted our molecular cloud when our solar system were formed. Um, that is really fascinating, I think. And I already mentioned that there is a M1, the Crab Nebula, which is maybe one of the most famous one. But for me, um, from Denmark, the, the one I like the most is SN1572, because it was uh, discovered by Tycho Brahe, or Tycho Brahe, as, as uh, you would say in English, which is a Danish astronomer. And he mm -hmm. saw it in Cassiopeia and called it Stella Nova, which means new star. He suddenly saw that there was something new there, which was in fact a, a supernova. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just looking at this one right now. Uh, what is the magnitude? I don't you know that you'll you'll find a magnitude yeah. for this one. For for a long time, people thought it was not uh, visually observable. But then, with the larger, faster telescopes, people like uh, Mel Bartels, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, have discovered is that uh, I, I think he and and if, I, I could be wrong, but I, I'm, I think he's one of the people that has observed this remnant. There's been a few others, but you need uh, sort of a specialized telescope and really dark skies, but it is visually observable to see SN 1572. Strangely enough, a good finder chart for that is the uh, Uranometria 1604. <laughs> Because they they plotted it um, since that that supernova was so well known in popular literature and in and still being discussed in astronomy circles in the early 1600s when Johannes Baer was was creating that really first really great star chart he did plot it in in several of the charts with uh, Cassiopeia so. It is kind of neat to to go back and look at that old that old chart and to actually see and you can see the size you know representing the stellar magnitude. It's about the size of the moon. 
on the chart. It's just fantastic. There's there's a couple uh, Nova and Supernova that are in there. I'm just looking out the window. We've got house wrens here, and they have no fear of us. One almost landed on my foot this morning, and I'm just watching my wife. She's sitting there, and they did just uh, come and sit under her. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear the, the birds going. Last nebulae that we're going to talk about are, uh, these are some of the ones that, that I spent a lot of time observing, and they're the uh, dark nebulae. So a lot of folks maybe haven't even bothered to look at these things before, but what are these dark nebulae and how are they different from the other nebulae that uh, you've talked to us about today? Yeah, I, I think it's true that probably many didn't bother to look at them, maybe not on purpose. But if you are at dark side, you might actually accidentally see them towards the Milky Way because you see these dark bands, which are dark nebulas. And what those are are also huge cloud of gas, but there are no uh, stars nearby that, that uh, ionize the gas. So it's just a huge clump of gas lying in the way of our line of sight. That's why they look dark, because we don't see anything uh, at that region of, of the of the sky. <clears throat> but they are actually mostly just blocking the visible light, which can be annoying for us amateur astronomers because we like to use our eyes. Uh, some like to use their to use the camera, but mostly we only work in the in the visible area of the of the spectrum. Um, but it is possible to see through them with radio waves and, and infrared observations. And if you are looking at a at a dark cloud, I I urge you to look at the edges of the dark clouds because if there are some background stars, they might look very red near the edges, and this is because near the edges there is less of the of the cloud, so there is a bit of the light coming through uh, the the cloud, and this is mostly the red light because all the blue light is absorbed by the by this dark nebula. So it seems like all the stars at the edges of, of a dark nebula are red, but this is uh, just an optical illusion because the, 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 dark nebula are the dark nebulas are observing all the, the blue light. Um, but they're very fascinating. And, and as I, I said that these are everywhere in, in the Milky Way. So if you go to a dark side and, and look towards the Milky Way, you might actually be able to see some of these dark patches. Um, and these dark nebulas, if they are being disturbed by external forces, this is where we can get star formation eventually. I like that you point people towards the Milky Way, just even looking at it with the unaided eye to start to see some of the dark nebula from, because even from a reasonably dark site, you can see those dark bands in the Milky Way, and those are dark nebulae. The, the most famous dark nebula, I always say, is sort of the most unfortunate dark nebula, which is uh, Barnard 33, which which was actually not discovered by Barnard, but discovered by Wilhelmina Fleming. And that is one of the toughest dark nebulae to see. It's the Horsehead Nebula, just uh, uh, southwest of Zeta Orionis. And it's just such a tough one to see. It takes a very in dark sight and and usually pretty good little telescope or even a pretty good big telescope but uh just going out looking up in, in particular 
there's some really nice dark clouds like the northern Sack, which is just up off of the uh, star Deneb, just to the south east of uh, the North American Nebula. So I, I like the fact that you you pointed that out to people. Very nice. Thank you for that. No problem. So I think we're just about getting to the end of this episode. Uh, any final thoughts to share with the listeners on Nebulae, Daniel? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I, I hope that I will be better at observing those and I hope that others will do <laughs> because they're fascinating objects. And remember what you're looking at. I think that is uh, the crucial part. Very cool. Well, thanks again. And Shane, do you have any concluding remarks for this episode on the nebulae? Maybe just one. Um, and it would be a reference to an older episode. I don't know the number offhand, but uh, nebulae is where your uh, deep sky filters will come into play. So if you have some deep sky filters and you're, you know, getting into some nebulae observations, uh, you know, this is where you'll pull out the O3s or the UHC filters. And uh, sometimes those will help you to see more detail or even just see the nebula nebulae in general. So uh, if you're interested in that, go through the archive and, and we definitely have one or two episodes just really talking about filter use and which ones are appropriate for different objects. Well, thanks for that, Shane. Thanks for this episode, Daniel. We really appreciate it and looking forward to the next two shorts. Thanks to the listeners for listening. You can always reach us with your show ideas, observations, or questions at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>